Hello to everyone. We're thankful for another opportunity to look into the Word of God. We hope that we can be a strength and a help to you through the Word. Um, we're in 2 Kings chapter number 2. And uh, last time, I guess really the last couple of times, we have saw Elijah transitioning out of his ministry in this world and being called unto heaven for his eternal rest. And Elisha, who has been prepared to step in and take his place. And uh, I feel like we ought to say while we're right here that Elisha was not called to be the prophet because he followed Elijah. He wasn't called to be the prophet because that was the office that he wanted from a child. But remember, we see the beginnings of Elisha, and it was with the call of God through Elijah at God's direction. Elijah did not choose Elisha. The nation did not choose Elisha. Elisha did not choose himself to be the prophet. But God Almighty told Elijah that Elisha is going to be the one to follow you, go and anoint him. We see how Elijah called him in 1 Kings, as we've already covered, and how that Elisha dropped everything, that effectual call. There's no other way to explain it, but the power of God had to be working in the words of Elijah in order for the man to drop everything that he had, burn the tools and, and cook an ox, and then follow Elijah, leaving everything behind. The grace of God was working there to cause that to happen as it did. And so God has called a man. He has allowed him to sit under the feet of Elijah and be instructed and to learn. And I think that's something that's uh, neglected a lot of times. God's men, they don't always just instantly pop in and know everything just because they're called. Elisha was called, but he was made to sit under Elijah and learn the word of God, the mind of God, the desire of God, carrying out the will of God. He learned all of these things. And we see, uh, we see an example of that in the New Testament as Paul talks to Timothy um, that he charges him to the things that he's received to commit thou to faithful men that they may continue this. It's Second uh, Timothy chapter 2 and verse number 2. And the things that thou hast heard of me among many witnesses, the same commit thou to faithful men who shall be able to teach others also. And I think a lot of times this part of the ministry is what's overlooked. The church gathers together not to frame up a message or uh, to frame up a thought in order to meet some goal of man, but the idea of the church, and, and, and God says in Ephesians that he provided apostles, he provided teachers, he provided pastors, he provided prophets. God provided all of these things to the church 
for the perfecting of the saints. And that should be the goal of the ministry of the church of the living God. I realize there's sinners that need to be saved, but they're going to be saved through the word of God. So that framing up now a message in my thought in order to get so-and-so to believe and come to the gospel, that's that's as wrong as uh, uh, trying to teach a false doctrine. None of that's to be. But Jesus tells Peter, Peter, feed my sheep, feed my lambs, feed my flock. Peter, when you're converted, strengthen the brethren. Paul tells Timothy, preach the word, make a straight cut, rightly divide it, and commit it to faithful men that they may be able to teach others also. There's a training up going on so that as we labor in the word of God, our desire is that other people might gain wisdom and understanding that they might be able to teach others also. We're going to need Sunday school teachers because man, by reason of death, is not allowed to continue on forever. We need some people that are trained up in the Word of God and not just one little thing here or there, but we need an understanding of the whole counsel of God being built upon right doctrine so that the church can have these teachers, these preachers, these men that have learned and witnessed from those that God has called in the past that God can call them out and they be prepared and thoroughly furnished for the work of the ministry. A lot of folks today trying to teach, trying to preach, they have very little depth of understanding in the scripture. We need God's revelation and we need some folks in the church that are teaching and building up the church in the most holy faith. That our desire ought to be that the people that are present might learn something about God. And I promise this, you focus your time and attention on preaching the word of God. God will call those that needs to be saved. God can work in their hearts by the Spirit and bring them, and they're going to come through the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ. We need to grow and learn in the Scriptures And really, it's the scriptures that mold our lives into the image of the Son of God. And if I never grow in knowledge of the Word, then I'm never going to grow in my life being more like the life of the Son of God. But they go hand in hand. As I come to greater knowledge in the scripture... And as God's Spirit reveals and as I'm taught more and more of the right doctrine, my attitude and my thought towards God, towards salvation, towards all of this work that God has done, that's being changed by the knowledge of the Scripture and my mind is being renewed and conformed to the image of the Son of God. So the the goal of the ministry is that people might come to a greater knowledge of the whole counsel of God Almighty. And Elijah was in his place, not as a man to glorify himself or his good deeds or his works, but Elijah was in a position as a minister, as a servant to Israel, 
that folks could learn about God, God's Word, and that that God had revealed unto man. And that is why that the church, they call them ministers all through the New Testament. The pastor is not an exalted being above everyone else, but he's there as a servant to help man grow in understanding of the doctrine of the Word of God. And Elijah was that unto Elisha. Paul was that to Timothy and to Titus and no telling how many others that Paul instructed and that these men that God saved, they grew in understanding by the understanding that God gave to Paul. God don't allow me to learn something so that I can glorify myself in that now I know something that you don't. But if God reveals something to me or to you, if God would help us in understanding of the scriptures, he helps us in that way that we might impart that wisdom to others and that the whole church might grow and benefit from the revelation of God. So just because we've got some new thought or idea, that's not for me to exalt myself, but that's for the edification of the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. So that's, that's the word of God. And remember, he gave to the church pastors and apostles and teachers. He provided the church with what the church needs to grow and become perfected in the knowledge of the Son of God. And may God help us always. And I, I know how fallible that we are and how that we of ourselves, we will err in doctrine and in understanding. We will miss the mark as uh, it's stated in the Word of God. I pray God's grace ever be on me and help me to have a right understanding revealed by God of the work that he would call us into to be a help to the church that they might grow and that they might be established in sound doctrine. And when somebody gets up with a doctrine that is not biblical, I can discern that that is not the truth because that does not line up with the scripture. And how wonderful it is that when we grow beyond, well, I don't believe that because my preacher says that or because this is what my mama taught me. When we can grow out of that, be able to understand the scriptures as they're written and say, I don't believe that because this is what the Bible says. So often, the tradition and the thought of man stands against the tradition and the doctrine of the Scripture. And, you know, it's hard to swallow sometimes, but God helped me to lay down my tradition to move myself to the Word of God. That's required in order for me to grow. So... We see in Kings now that Elisha has stepped in and he's not stepped in out of the blue, but he's been taught, he's learned, he's studied, he's applied himself 
And that's another thing. Man today thinks, well, we don't need to study. We don't need to dig. We just need a little thought and we'll let God do the rest. Well, Paul said, Timothy, study to shew yourself approved. Be diligent, make speed, put forth effort. That's what that word means. To show yourself approved unto God. Man would like to do this work with no effort from himself, and man wants to be exalted for that. May God help us to put forth effort, to study, to ponder, to meditate the word of God and take advantage of what God has blessed you with that you might grow in understanding and in the knowledge of the scripture. It'd be a shame to be blessed with a wonderful pastor that's rightly dividing the word of God or a wonderful teacher that's rightly dividing the word of God and not be able to grow from that because of lack of application. God help us to, to hunger and desire the milk and the meat of the word that we might grow thereby. Grow in knowledge and in understanding. And as we grow in that, our lives will be changed by the knowledge and understanding of the scripture. God's established it that way. That's the way God set it up. And God's provided what we need to grow. God help us to take advantage and to grow and to do some homework as well and to dig into the scriptures that we might grow in our understanding of the word of God. So uh, we, we'll just review just for a minute. So Elisha sees Elijah go into heaven and the Lord allows that mantle of Elijah, Elijah to fall to the ground and Elisha picks up that mantle of Elijah. He walks down to the river and he smites and he says, where is the God of Elijah? Now that sounds, if we read that in our language, it sounds like he's doubting or he's being a smart aleck saying, God, where are you at? What are you going to do here? But really, he's walked down to the water with that mantle and God's called him and God's promised him that if you see Elijah go, I'll bless you with that spirit. And Elisha's going down to the river and saying, God, now you've called me into this and you've promised these things. Now come through on your promise. And God bears witness both to Elisha himself and to the 50 men that were on the mountain watching over this thing, that Elisha was the man that God chose to take position as the prophet in Israel. And they recognized it. As God parted the water in the same way that he did for Elijah, they said the Spirit of the Lord is upon Elisha, just like it was Elijah. So there was a witness of God. And I say this, if somebody is called of God to preach, God will witness by his spirit that he has called them into the work. It won't be, and there's, there's a lot of men trying. They're trying to do, and they're trying to be without the call of God. Well, now I believe all through the word, God chose Aaron and his sons to be the high priest. God chose 
who the prophet was going to be, and God called them in. God chose the apostles. He chose them out of the world, and he chose them to have the office of the apostle. And I believe God chooses his ministers today and calls them and equips them to do the work. And if there's no witness of God, if the Spirit of God will not witness that they are called of him, then no matter what they are or what they say, they're not called of God. It's, it's a necessity, a requirement in order to be in the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not left up to me to pick what I'm going to be. God provides according to his will and according to his counsel. And so we saw Elisha work his first miracle the parting of the river, and then we saw him heal the waters of the city of Jericho there, and the waters were healed unto this day. Now we're going to come to a scripture. I believe that it's hard to swallow, but it's in the scripture, so God help us to understand what's being revealed here. 2 Kings chapter 2, verse 23. And he went up from thence unto Bethel. And as he was going up by the way, there came forth little children out of the city and mocked him and said unto him, Go up, thou bald head. Go up, thou bald head. And he turned back and looked on them and cursed them in the name of the Lord. And there came forth two she-bears out of the wood and tear forty and two children of them. And he went from thence to Mount Carmel, and from thence he returned to Samaria. And so the problem that folks have with this is we've got a picture of a God that only loves, a God that is only merciful, a God that honest in the minds of a multitude of people, is going to allow anything and everything to go on. He's never really going to bring judgment. And in the end, anybody that's good or anybody that's trying hard, they're going to be saved. Well, we see here that this is not the case. Now, he says little children, and we picture toddlers or kindergartners in that. But you can also see this. This is also can be translated as young men. So teenagers, or uh, I mean, I don't know how old they are. But here they are, and they're at Bethel. So I think it's important to note that Bethel was one of the cities, and we've, we've mentioned this a few times, that the kingdoms were divided. There was the kingdom of Judah, where David ruled in Jerusalem and Solomon and when Rehoboam took over he ruled over the twelve and he rejected the council of the elders and the northern ten tribes rebelled so that there was Judah and Benjamin two tribes left in the kingdom of Judah and the other ten tribes made up the kingdom of Israel. Now that kingdom of Israel, that's where Ahab was the king and Jehoshaphat was the king of Judah at the same time. We remember all of these things. Well, when Jeroboam took the kingdom of Israel after the split, 
he did not want the people to go to Jerusalem and worship because he was afraid that if they went to Jerusalem to the temple to worship, that what they would do is turn from him and go back under the other kingdom, the kingdom of Judah. So his decision was to set up two golden calves. He put one in Dan, and he put one in Bethel. And he said, now, don't go down to Jerusalem and worship. You come to my calves when I point and when I say, and that's where, as far as you're going to go, you go there and worship. Worship these idols. And so that, we see that often talked about throughout the rest of the history of the kingdom of Israel up until Assyria carried them away, that they went to those calves and worshiped. So this place, Bethel, was a place where idolatry, it was one of the centers of idolatry for that northern kingdom of Israel. And so they know of Elijah, they know of Elisha, and they know that he represents the God of Israel, and no doubt he's hated and despised by a multitude of the people. And so these children, having been taught the ways of idolatry and not the ways of God, they go out to make fun of the prophet of God. Go on up, bald head. Go on up. And exactly where they're saying to go, I don't know. Maybe they're saying, go up and worship at the idol or go on up and get out of our city because we don't want you here. However and whatever accusation that they're making, they are out here mocking and making fun of God and the man that God chose to step into his place. And you could say, well, Elisha acted here in haste and it wasn't God's will. Well, it was certainly the power of God that brought the two bears out of the wood and tear them up. That had to have been directed by the hand of the Lord. And if Elisha had acted in a way that was contrary to God, would God have bore witness to that with his power? Would he have brought that to pass? So God, God is merciful. God is long-suffering. God is gracious. But God is not infinitely merciful, long-suffering, and gracious. And God does not owe to man to be long-suffering, merciful, and gracious. The problem is is that God is so long-suffering that man has got it set in his heart that he deserves God to always be long-suffering with him and we never warrant the judgment of God to fall on our heads. And he says in Ecclesiastes, because sentence against an evil work isn't executed speedily, it's fully said in the hearts of the sons of men to do evil. That God's mercy and his long suffering and him putting up with the iniquity of mankind has brought man to a place of insanity in his heart that he thinks and he believes that he's always going to get by 
with what he says and what he does, and God's never going to bring judgment. Well, God is bringing a <clears throat> rude awakening here that that's not the case. God does not owe it to you to be merciful unto you. God could at any moment and at any time bring swift judgment and destruction on any individual or on the world as a whole and be perfectly just in doing so. And see, here's the problem. If every man gets the same opportunity, then what do you do then in the Old Testament when they were marrying and giving in marriage and there were children and there were old and there were middle-aged that were alive at the time of the flood and God's justice brought the flood and brought destruction on everyone that was outside of the ark of God. See, God doesn't have to grant everyone the same opportunity. Yea, God is long-suffering and merciful, but he will not always be so. And everyone that's outside of the Lord Jesus Christ, they will meet a holy God, a God that Scripture reveals is a consuming fire, a God that it is a fearful thing to fall into his hands. Outside of the Lord Jesus, this is the God that we're going to meet. A God that will not allow sin to go on forever and ever. A God that will bring judgment and destruction upon all of those that are outside of Christ because they have sinned and transgressed the commandment of God. God ought to be feared for his holiness, his righteousness, and his justice. What you're seeing here, by the law of God, they are blaspheming God's man. They are blaspheming God's word. By the law, they were to be stoned. They were to face the penalty of death. And here, they get justice. Man that believes that he wants justice I would quickly disagree. Is, is this what you would like? That the moment sin occurs, God brings swift justice. God could do that, and it would be fair, and it would be right. God could destroy the whole world. And the thing is, we know that he's going to. He could come back at any time and destroy all of those that are outside of Christ. Judgment as this, and you know, you think of this occurrence here, here they are mocking the word of God, and God brings bears out. What a fearful thing that that would be. But my God, what about stepping into eternity in the face of a God that cannot look on sin? And here we are covered in sin. Here we are guilty of the law. Here we are, I tell you what it'll bring, the fear of man to the place that they'll say I'd be better off if the mountains would fall on me than to have to look 
at this holy and righteous and pure God any longer. That Moses, who only saw and witnessed the hinder parts of God as he was hid in the cleft of the rock, Moses had to put a veil on his face because the reflected glory of God in Moses' face was too much for the children of Israel to look on. Moses was, in a sense, the intercessor because they could not, as a people, stand to hear the voice of God, nor could they look on Moses' face that had seen the hinder parts of the glory of God. Oh, I tell you, when God makes himself manifest, it is an humbling and a crushing and a fearful place for a man to be found. Isaiah saw the glory of God in the temple and he didn't see God's face. He saw the train of the Lord. He saw the hinder parts as Moses did. And he fell on his face and he said, Woe unto me! Woe and judgment! Destruction upon me because I am undone and I'm a man of unclean lips. In the presence of the holiness of God, Isaiah saw the judgment that he deserved. So is God wrong then for bringing judgment on the young? Is he wrong for bringing judgment on the old? The Lord Jesus was asked this question. It seems like in Jesus' day, there was people at the temple of God offering sacrifices, and Pilate sent men down there and had them killed. And the Bible says their blood was mingled with their sacrifices. And there was a tower of Siloam and there was just people gathered around or walking down the street and the tower of Siloam fell and killed them. And they're saying, how can God bring such judgment on these people? Why is it that this has happened to these people that were offering their sacrifices? Why is it that this happened to these people that were just walking down the street that God allowed such tragedy to happen to them. Did Jesus say, I'm sorry? God, God shouldn't have done that? That's what we think when we read this scripture here in uh, chapter 2 of Second Kings. Well, God shouldn't have done that. No, the message of Jesus is, unless you repent, you're going to be destroyed in the same way. What you should ask is, why didn't the tower of Siloam Fall on me. Why didn't God bring bear out of the woods and ravage me when I was in sin and when I mocked God and when I caused great sin? Why didn't God strike me down and mingle my blood with the sacrifices? He could have. It would have been just for God to have done so. All that I would have received was what I was owed. That would have been justice. But God was long-suffering and merciful and kind unto me. And God endured my sin. And God's enduring much sin today. But know that He is still and He remains a just and holy God. And though He's long-suffering, judgment is sure, certain, coming, 
near in the future upon all of those outside of the Lord Jesus Christ. Where does that leave me? I'd better be in the Lord Jesus because I can expect this same judgment to come to me. So that the thought then, as we read this, was, boy, that was mean, and that wasn't very loving of God. There's only one way that God can love a sinful man, and that's in Jesus Christ. And God's holiness cannot look on, cannot endure, Sin cannot stand in the presence of God for it'll be burned up immediately from his anger and wrath. But thank God that to those that he calls, there's a coal of fire off the altar that he can purge their lips with and bring them into his gracious glory. So that's the good news of the gospel. It's that God has sacrificed His Son, Jesus Christ, that we wouldn't have to face His holiness and His pureness and His righteousness and His justice. We don't have to face that in our sin and be destroyed like these were. I tell you, something like this happening, people will stand up and take notice at how righteous God is. We better not do that anymore. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hand of the living God. So God did bring judgment. What we would say is cruel judgment. God brought judgment upon those that mocked the word of God. And we can take this and rest assured that God will bring judgment on those that will not believe the gospel of the Son of God. So then he went from thence to Carmel, and from thence he returned to Samaria. They got what they asked for. He left Bethel, and he didn't stay there. But boy, judgment came. So... As we think on that, think on that holiness of God and think, what do I really deserve? If God is going to dole out justice today, where does that leave me? For we've sinned and we're guilty and if I get justice, what do I get? I get destruction, and God's not going to be unfair in destroying me. So thank God for the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ that God's justice and the penalty for sin He bore, and He bore the wrath of God. He substituted for me in death. The Bible teaches that. He tasted death. He took that on Himself he was made to be sin for us. He took our place in the justice and in the wrath of God so that God's justice is satisfied. There is no skirting of justice. Jesus bore the justice of God that we could be free and right with God.
in Christ Jesus alone. Thank you for your time. I hope the Lord blesses you with a wonderful week. Pray for us.